uh, grateful for your love. We're grateful for the songs that we're able to sing. We're just um, uh, casting ourselves upon you now that you would speak to us through your word. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, John chapter 14. We've seen um, lots of ways in which John's uh, gospel is tied to the Old Testament. Uh, so we don't have to reprove that. But, um, you know, John chapter 14 and maybe 13 as well, it certainly starts the whole, uh, what's called the upper room discourse. And so uh, this is the uh, message, the message that the Lord Jesus taught his disciples uh, the night before he went to the cross. So now some have said, and I think this is a, an outstanding idea, that um, every doctrine taught in the New Testament epistles is in seed form in the upper room discourse. You know, so people might, might challenge that and say, well, you know, uh, could the Lord Jesus really in a 15-minute or 20-minute or whatever it takes to read the Upper Room Discourse, could he really, um, in seed form, present every New Testament doctrine? Say, well, uh, that may be hard for us to believe, but we know this, that there were 600 and more than 630 laws in the Old Testament in Judaism, okay, the Lord Jesus was able to summarize all of the Old Testament law in one sentence. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, right? So you remember that those people he said that to, they were amazed at his understanding and his wisdom, okay? So um, the idea that, that the doctrines in seed form in the upper room discourse, so that first. Then in John chapter 13, it sort of, uh, it gives the uh, flavor or the feeling in the room. You know, there's, um, uh, you know, this would be the equivalent passage, uh, John chapter 13, the equivalent, uh, or sorry, the equivalent passages in the, uh, in the other gospels, in the synoptics, would be the institution of the Lord's Supper. So it's always interesting, you know, that, um, you know, you read the institution of the Lord's Supper, for instance, in, um, in Luke's Gospel. Now we know Luke's Gospel is not necessarily chronological order, it isn't, but it's a spiritual order. And so do you remember that, uh, do you remember in Luke chapter 22 when the Lord Jesus instituted the, the Last Supper, or the Lord's Supper, which Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians, and he instituted the Lord's Supper. Do you remember what the next verse underneath that is, just from memory? Well, let me tell you. It says, then they began to argue amongst themselves who would be the greatest. Can you believe that? Here they are, the institution of the Lord's Supper. The Lord Jesus is told about how he's going to the cross to give his life. The supper would be a memorial of his death, burial, resurrection. It would be a reminder of the new covenant. And it says immediately after that, the disciples began to argue amongst themselves who would be the greatest. Well, that's the spirit of the upper room. You know, so you've got the disciples arguing, You've got um, Peter doubting. You've got Judas in the midst. You've got all these things going on. And you, you might ask the question, well, um, what kind of a message would the Lord Jesus teach these men that could change their lives, could change how they live? Well, uh, John 14, verse 1. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, 
and where I go you know, and the way you know. C.S. Lewis said that when you read the annals of Christian history, you will find that those who've accomplished the most for their generation, for the world in which they live, are those who thought the most about the next world, who had their mind on heavenly things. Hey, sometimes you hear this expression, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. Hey, that's not true. That's the problem with that cliche or that saying, it's not true. The Lord Jesus in John's gospel is presented as the man who is in heaven, right? And he, who accomplished more for the world than the Lord Jesus? Nobody. So this idea of so heavenly minded nor is the good, they say, that's not true. The Lord Jesus knew this, that with all of the, the turmoil and all of the problems going on, in that upper room that the perfect message for these men would be a message on heaven, right? This idea of thinking of the next life. Somehow this would motivate them to live different. Hey, this is what John says in his first epistle. He says, those Christians who have this hope, what do they do? They purify themselves, right? So, we want to think about that and, and tie... Uh, tie this together uh, with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But before we do that, we want to turn back to um, that great book on prophecy in the Old Testament, that book that they tell us, that the scholars tell us, it's impossible to understand the revelation apart from understanding this book. And that's the book Daniel. And so there's great um, book on prophecy the book of Daniel and um, chapter 1. Harry Ironside in his commentary on um, Daniel says, um, although it's a great outstanding wor work on prophecy, how much prophecy is there in chapter 1? None. What's chapter 1 of Daniel about? It's, it's about Daniel and his friends. Hey, listen to this. Not how they were the same as everybody else, but how they were different. Hey, make no mistake about it. If we're going to have impact in the world, and we were reminded of this yesterday, John Wesley said, hey, you want Christians to have impact? Hey, listen, it's not converts that make impact, it's disciples. Hey, this is why the Lord Jesus could, could turn the world upside down, or as William McDonald says, actually right side up, with 11 men because they were his disciples, men who were willing to forsake all to follow him. And that's the cost of discipleship in Luke chapter 14. That's the language the Lord Jesus uses. And so Daniel and his friends had impact, not in how they were the same as everybody else, but in fact, how they were different in their separation. And you know, um, hey, uh, I guess maybe it's true that in a past generation you would hear way more messages on believer and their separation than maybe we do today. But that's what chapter 1 is about. So you go through, uh, they didn't look the same, they didn't talk the same, uh, they didn't even eat the same as, their, as their, uh, these other men uh, in the kingdom. Uh, you say, well, uh, was Daniel of a benefit? Hey, Harry Ironside says, as Daniel rose to power in, in potentially four kingdoms, 
Hey, who's ever done that before? Four different, potentially four different kings. Well, three for sure. And he says Artaxerxes in the, later on in the book is probably Daniel was there too. But at least three kingdoms. And so, you know, you have Daniel. What did people think of him? What did Nebuchadnezzar think of Daniel? Well, I'll tell you what he thought of him. He was, Daniel was his spiritual father in the faith. Because you can read Nebuchadnezzar's, um, you can read his testimony in chapter 4. And so Daniel stood before him and said, King, here's a man, here's a man, Nebuchadnezzar, who, who, uh, who didn't live by any law, only the law in his heart. He didn't answer to anybody. And um, Daniel said, uh, King, you need to repent of your sins. He said, I, I hear what's going to happen. I know what the Lord is going to do, and I wish it wasn't true, but King, you need to repent. Well, he didn't at first, but he did eventually. And so Daniel was his spiritual father. What about um, uh, Darius? Did Darius like Daniel? Hey, Darius loved Daniel. When, when Darius, who didn't have the authority of Nebuchadnezzar, was manipulated by his ministers, and, and Daniel gets put into the lion's den, what does Darius do? He doesn't sleep a wink. He's up all night. Early in the morning, he comes, Oh, Daniel, oh, Daniel, is your God able to... He says, King, don't worry. And so Darius loved. Yeah. They're on their way to church, probably somewhere else. Um, and, and so Darius loved uh, Daniel, right? And so, uh, you know, Belshazzar, well, hey, hey, listen, he knew who he needed to talk to when the writing was on the wall. So even him, he, he appreciated Daniel. And so uh, it was his separation. So what we want to look at is one verse. Uh, from chapter 12. And we ask, what was it that motivated these men to live like this? Well, the last verse uh, of the book of Daniel, verse 13 of chapter 12, but you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of your days or the end of the days. And so Daniel's motivation wasn't for the kingdom in which he lived, it was for a coming kingdom. Hey, that was always the hope. Hey, Abraham, what was his hope? Hey, Abraham lived uh, uh, in the expectation of a city whose builder and maker was God. Hey, Abraham was content to live his whole life in tents, camping, camping. They say, well, maybe he couldn't afford a house. Hey, hey, Abraham could have afforded a house. He could have afforded to build a city. Very few people in scripture are considered very rich. Abraham was one of them. And so, hey, when we think of some God calling somebody very rich, he must have been loaded. And he was content to live in a city. Why? Because, or sorry, to live in a tent uh, because he was looking to his earthly inheritance, or sorry, his heavenly inheritance, right? That city and builder and maker is God. All right. In um, Daniel 12, verse 1, uh, it says this, At that time, Michael shall stand up. Notice this the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And so now we have uh, connected with Daniel and his inheritance, we have Michael the archangel, who always in scripture is connected to Israel. Okay, so, um, um, you know, we had in the Feast of Leviticus chapter 23, we saw how the first four had been fulfilled, and then we had this break, okay, we had this break, and then we have um, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of um, Weeks, right? Right, we had that, those next three that hadn't been fulfilled. So, uh, John chapter 14, we already read. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
and we were reminded of the principle that um, the um, the um, upper room discourse, John chapter 14, that all of these all of these things, these these things that the Lord Jesus taught, all these seed thoughts are developed in the New Testament epistles. We we had that brought before us, and so I'm going to suggest to you that that what you have in John chapter 14, this message on heaven, is what Paul is talking about uh, in First Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verse 13. Uh, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And we could show, we could show a half a dozen connections between 1 Thessalonians 4 and John chapter 14. I mean, half a dozen connections that others have pointed out to us, and there's probably more. So there's no question when you look at these two passages now you look at these two passages that they're referring to the same thing. So what is it? Well, we would, we would, we would say and we would believe that, that what we have in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is the rapture of the church. That, um, that that's the hope of the believer. Hey, the hope is not for uh, government to change the world. You know, that's, that's not God's solution. That's not how it's going to happen. Uh, the hope for the church, the hope which John talked about that purifies itself, that inheritance that Daniel was thinking about, hey, is the coming of the Lord Jesus. And so, actually, we, we look at current events and we say, man, it's closer than it's ever been. I mean, it's hard to believe that, hey, it couldn't be even maybe today. I mean, you look at uh, world events and you look at things that are happening in other parts of the world, not just in North America, and you think, how, how could it continue? And so the rapture of the church, this idea that what Paul is talking about here could happen at any moment. But it's not just a single event. Actually, what's happening here in 1 Thessalonians 4 is is a few things going on at the same time. So we want to we key on this one sentence. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Then there's a comma. With the voice of an archangel, there's a comma. And with the trumpet of God, period. And so, yes, these ideas are connected together, but they're still distinct. The um, Lord himself with a shout, that's for the church. And make no mistake about it, um, the Lord Jesus doesn't need the help of an archangel to rapture and power his people. His word of his mouth will be enough. Uh, say, well, what's with the uh, voice of the archangel? Well, I would suggest that's from Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. You know, that this was the inheritance that, that Daniel was waiting for. He's living in the light of the, the same inheritance as us. In fact, 
Harry Ironside has this idea, this presentation of that, that long line before the Lord Jesus at his coming, that day of accountability. And um, he says, hey, Daniel was there. Hey, these men went without so that you could enter in. And he says, so all the Old Testament saints here in 1 Thessalonians 4, um, the voice of the archangel. And then it says, lastly, with the trumpet of God. What's that connected to? Hey, well, that's connected to Leviticus chapter 23. Hey, the feast that hasn't yet come. Hey, we're living in the time of harvest. But hey, there's going to come a day when the Lord Jesus, according to Leviticus chapter 23, according to this passage, he's going to take up again his work with Israel. And he's going to finish what he started. He's going to fulfill his promises from the Old Testament to his earthly people. And it's going to start with, with Leviticus chapter 23 and the Feast of Trumpets, the calling them back to the land. Now, hey, they're there now, but in unbelief. But make no mistake, hey, they will be back there in belief. And, um, and um, the Feast of Atonement, the Day of Atonement, what's that with regards to? Hey, that's with regards to the restoration of his earthly people. You know, we love uh, Isaiah 53. Uh, we love to read it in the Lord's Supper and think about the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross for us. But we know that, that Isaiah 53 is really unique in this sense that it's written in the prophetic past tense. Hey, there's lots of prophecy in the Old Testament, but not very much prophetic past tense. Isaiah 53 is prophetic past tense, and it's a testimony. Whose testimony is it? It's Israel's testimony. They say this, we estimated that he was afflicted of God. That was our estimation. But now we realize that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. And you know what will happen? A nation will be born in a day. That's what the Bible says. That's pictured here. The trumpet will, will start that. The trumpet of God that begins his prophetic clock moving forward again. Um, you know, and then they'll, they'll do what they were, the commission they were given in the, in the first place. What was their original commission? It was to evangelize the world. That was God's purpose for Israel. Not that they would be chosen and separated in exclusivity for just himself, but that they could be a blessing to others. And so they'll get that opportunity. Uh, John Phillips says, um, Hey, we're the beneficiaries of the uh, ministry of the Apostle Paul. You know, this apostle that um, came to the realization of who Christ was and was a blessing to the whole world. He says, hey, in Revelation it says there are going to be 144,000 Apostle Pauls converted in a day. And these 12,000 from every tribe will go forth. And he says that's why uh, when we turn to the revelation, we actually see two innumerable hosts in heaven, right? And remember, John sees this host that can't be numbered. He says, where did they come from? He says, he says, you know, these were born out of the tribulation. 
Well, how'd they hear about the Messiah? Hey, the Jews themselves told them, 144,000. So we have that going on um, uh, in, in, the, in the rapture. So we have the, 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 the shout of the Lord for the church. We have the voice of the archangel for Israel. We have the trump of God to start God's timetable moving forward. So people say, well, I'm not sure about all this. Say, okay. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is the testimony the testimony of the Old Testament saints. I just want one verse. Uh, this is the Apostle Paul writing, we assume, well, we believe that. Verse 40, a God having provided something better for us. So the us is the New Testament church. That's you and I and the Apostle Paul because we're in the same church as him, the same body. Uh, God having provided something better for us Notice this, that they, who's the they? That's the Old Testament saints, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. And so we'd recommend this verse prove the idea that whatever's happening is happening together, okay? So there's that. All right, turn back to the Gospel of John, which again, we see how these things uh, tie together and that John doesn't just write these things for uh, no, no reason, but uh, in John chapter three, Uh, sorry, John chapter, uh, yeah, John chapter 3. Um, so people struggle with this idea, say, well, I'm not sure if the Old Testament saints are raptured with the church, and say, okay, well, fair enough. Hey, do you believe in the marriage supper of the Lamb? They say, well, yeah, of course we believe that. I say, when's that going to happen? Well, hey, that's going to happen during the tribulation, right? Isn't it? Because when we come back, after the, uh, after the tribulation and come back to the earth to reign with Christ, we'll all ready, the church will all be ready to be wed to him, right? So we say, yeah, that must, be happening, um, uh, that must be happening during the tribulation. So while the tribulation is going on on earth, the marriage supper of the Lamb is going on in heaven. So we say, yes, we agree with that. Hey, who's the best man at the wedding? You say, well, um, who is the best man at the wedding? Well, John tells us. Uh, you know, when, um, when John was introducing his disciples, his own disciples to the Lord Jesus in John chapter 1, people thought that um, he would be envious of the Savior, right? That he was, because he was losing his disciples, that this would make him envious. And so they said, aren't you, uh, aren't you upset that your disciples are leaving you and um, following the Lord Jesus? He says, of course not. He said, the um, friend of the bridegroom, and let's read it. You yourselves, in verse 28 of John 3, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. Notice this, but the friend of the bridegroom. So you look that word friend up, you know what it says? Could be translated the best man. And so uh, is the best man going to be there? Well, I assume he will be. I assume from this verse. And I say, how did he get there? Hey, got there the same way we got there. Uh, by grace, through faith, at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Hey, this is the hope of the church. This is what should motivate us to live different from others, to live a separated, set-apart life. 
There is the day of accountability coming, and make no mistake about that, that the Lord Jesus, although he seems like he's not interested in what's going on, he is interested, and he's keeping accurate records. His word proves his accuracy. And so there's nothing going on in the world right now that he's not keeping track of. And there will be the day of accountability. But those who die out of Christ, who die out of Christ will be gone to a lost eternity to be punished forever. And so we say, hey, this should motivate us. Hey, this motivated Daniel. Right? This motivated the Apostle Paul. This motivated the Apostle John to live for their generation and to be a help and to be a blessing to a lost world. So we say, hey, we hope that it will change the way we think change the way we live. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we're uh, grateful for the hope of the soon coming of the Lord Jesus. We remember, um, remember the words of the Apostle John right at the end of your word that he would declare, uh, even so, come Lord Jesus. And so uh, as we think of, of your coming Lord Jesus, we think of those in our lives whom we know and love who uh, aren't ready. And so, Lord, we pray that, that you would... Um, by your spirit, uh, invigorate our souls and um, cause us to uh, be motivated to live and to preach and to love for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Bless your people, we pray, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.